I know no better way to start than to pray. And we've prayed a lot this morning, and I really uh, find that as a comforting thing, that we've included more prayer in the service than, you know, just by circumstance than sometimes we do. But let's go to Father, our Father in prayer. Father, we gather here this morning in the name of Jesus the Christ. We are here for you, God. Jesus, no human can ever equal your example of faith and conduct. We can add nothing to what you have done for us. Instead, we pray that the Holy Spirit will fill this space and move in ways we cannot explain. Spirit, may you empower us to be the body of Christ in the world in bold new ways that glorify the Father and are also respectful of ourselves. Point to what you desire each of us hears, takes away, and acts upon as we start a new week. Jesus, we thank you for your Sermon on the Mount, the ethics it contains, and your empowerment for us to see how to put it into practice today. May we leave this place with renewed confidence in your request for us to co-work with you, making disciples as we go, thanks to you being with us until the very end. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5, 6, and 7. Chapters 5 has a lot in it, and we're not going to cover it all today. Uh, unfortunately, when some of us are up here only one time uh, every other month or so, it's really hard to put an entire chapter into one sermon. And some people would go to sleep, and other people would say, hey, you could have just hit the high points. So um, we're going to do it a little bit differently this morning. But before we can talk about the Sermon on the Mount and the ethics, um, Tommy's communion service, and I was listening to what he was saying, hopefully you all were, and Tommy, I thought of another R, uh, Reset. Sunday is a reset in a way, right? We come back, we reaffirm our commitment, we center ourselves in Christ, we leave the table, and we go out for another week. And we go for just about a week, and then we need another reset, and we come back. And I heard that, even if Tommy didn't use that word, I heard that in his three R's, so maybe it's really four. But we need a reset this morning, I think, too. We can't go into the Sermon on the Mount ethics with all of the different discussions that are about them, whether or not they're possible, whether they're, you know, they're, they're too lofty and should be placed for for eternity and when Jesus comes back, or how we should conduct them. We can't do any of that unless we're unified. So I want to do something real quickly. Amen. Interesting word. Little short word, four letters, comes from the Hebrew, aman. It's a very powerful word. It basically means to confirm something is reliable and trustworthy, or to say that something is true. And you may say, well, yeah, I knew that. Um, But it's also agreeing with something to and within the will of God. Basically saying, I believe it, and therefore, so be it, as we always say amen means, as God intends. So when we say this word, whether it's the end of one of our prayers or whether it's uh, as a comment uh, when people are saying things, this is basically what it's encapsulating that we believe. So let's say a few things. You can say these with me or you can just let me say them and then you can say amen. And if you can't say amen to them, that's fine, but hopefully you can say amen to all of them. We believe in God the Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen? 
We believe Jesus is the Son of God and the firstborn of the dead, proving our future existence in Christ. Amen. We believe there is one body and one spirit, just as we too were called to the one hope of our calling, our Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Amen. We believe anyone who confirms these facts is our sister and brother in Christ. Amen. From this moment on, we agree that all between us is forgiven as Christ has forgiven us. Now, what what I mean is, anybody in this room, anybody online, we are here. No one is trying to get it wrong. We are here because of what we've just said we believe. And the best way we can prove to the world that we believe it is to love on each other the way Jesus loves on us. Otherwise, the world's never going to see Jesus' prayer in John 17 in, in, in existence. That we're not, if we're not living it in here, in the internal family, there's no way we're going to be living it outside. Amen? We have now resumed the journey together as equals in Christ. All has been forgiven. Christ is through all and in all. We can enter the challenge of the text unified as Christ because it's important. Because some of us aren't going to agree with some of the things maybe even that are said this morning, and that's okay. It may take a few days, it may take a few weeks, it may take years. But Matthew 5, verse 38 through 42, is a, is a section, a passage of text that we like to sometimes have various different answers for. And we tell people, well, you know, yes, that's awesome, but not sure we can really do that, not really sure he expects us to do that. That's what we're going to contemplate this morning. Let's, let's listen to the text And then let's think about uh, what's actually included. This is from your Matthew ESV version that you hopefully have with you. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Yeah, but, right? Yeah, but, uh, that was then, this is now. Yeah, but, there's people who take advantage of us because they know that uh, we believe we should be doing these things, and we just, we just get made out to look like the weak people. Yeah, but, um, does Jesus really expect me to be a doormat and just get beat up all the time and turn my other cheek and say, you hit me once, turn around and hit me again? Or can any of these ethics really happen before Jesus returns? Well, Les said it best last week. If you follow Jesus, know what he actually does. Les Chapman. And I was frantically writing it down. I was like, That's, that is the takeaway from the sermon for me this morning. I'm not sure that if we ask those previous questions I just went through, and we really are contemplating answers that we think maybe this doesn't apply to us, we don't know the answer to this. Another way of saying it um, would be to follow Christ is to immerse oneself in his word. It is to think in biblical terms and in biblical ways. doesn't mean that we have to do exactly the same thing. We just do things in our time the same way, biblically ways. That's what we're going to look at this morning. Because here's the thing, if we pause and think that this sermon is crazy, we're missing something. I promise you, because I did it most of my life, and I was in churches that did it too. 
But here's the danger. If we impose our context on the, on the text, it distorts the meaning. We can come up with all kinds of reasons we shouldn't do these things or that they don't apply to us. It's not good to be more guarded, however, than the text itself. And what I mean by that is let's actually see what the text says and then look at the text for what it says and see if we can dig a little deeper and understand it. Otherwise, our Christology, indeed our theology, suffers greatly for it. Now this might, this might sting a little bit, but we, were, we know these trees really well, right? I was, I've been doing a lot of in-depth study uh, this whole year, actually, since January in, in the Pentateuch, and in, obviously Genesis and, and Exodus uh, start that. And it's, it's fascinating to me that I had never seen this before. Idolatry actually started right here. When Adam and Eve decided that what God had told them to do, they knew a better way of doing it. So they put themselves in God's position. They decided if, if the devil was telling them the truth or not, and they decided what they would actually do compared to what God asked them to do, they put themselves in God's place. And when I sat there and thought about that, I thought, yeah, we pretty much do the same thing. The devil asked them, did God actually say you shall not eat of the tree, of any of the trees in the garden? And of course that was a false statement, and Eve corrected him. But are we saying, did Jesus actually say that we do not need to turn the other cheek, give our garments, and go the extra mile? And if we decide we don't, then we've made the same decision that Adam and Eve have made, unfortunately. So the text challenges us to interpret it in the new ways of thinking, to imagine possibilities. And this would seem to indicate that the important uh, interpretive task is to know as much as possible about the original historical context and meaning and to know how it might, we might be able to use that meaning to creatively and imaginatively challenge destructive mores in our culture. In other words, we're not going to go out of here today and have somebody say, hey, need you to carry my pack a mile and you have to by law. It's not going to happen. But there's something we can think of. There's something the Spirit will show us that's the equivalent to that. That's what we're, that's what we're contemplating and pondering this morning. Jesus is not telling us to submit to evil. It's not what it says. It says do not, it says actually do not resist the one who is evil. But it doesn't say submit to evil. Um, We are to refuse, but we are to refuse on God's terms and biblical terms, not on evil's terms. If we just haul off and hit the person who hit us, what are we doing? We're We're retaliating the exact same way. We are not to let the opponent dictate the methods of our opposition. Now, what this is normally labeled, and I heard Les say this too in one of his sermons, is Jesus' third way, and it's genius. It's absolute genius. And it's maybe even more genius than we've ever seen when we look at these particular verses this morning. We must place ourselves in the context of the discourse in order to really understand what Jesus is saying. For example, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, then turn to him the other one. Did it matter? Why didn't he just say if anybody slaps you on the left cheek? Or just the cheek? And then we could have decided which one. Well, it turns out it actually does matter. There's a couple of things. We might imagine a blow to the right, uh, with the right fist, right? Because if someone's standing in front of me, my right's their left, their left's my right, right? But their nose is in the way. So if I'm going to punch them, I'm going to punch across, right? I'm going to hit them in the left cheek, not, not in the right cheek. That would be, that would be one thing. So First of all, the right cheek is already kind of, we've got to think through the scenario of what's going on. To hit the right cheek with a fist would require the left hand. 
okay? Everybody with me so far? This is the hardest one, by the way. Everybody with me so far? However, the left hand could only be used for unclean tasks in the first century. If you use the left hand and you did something like hit somebody, then you've got to go pay penance for 10 days. Well, that's going to be a setback, so you're not going to do that. You're going to use your right hand, all right? How would you hit someone on the right cheek with the right hand? Well, thankfully, the ESV fixed it for us. It uses the translation slap or backhand, right? If you're in front of me and this is your right side and I'm on this, I can use my right hand and I can, I can backhand you. Okay, but that's not to injure somebody. We're not talking about a boxing match or a fist fight in the back alley. We're talking about an insult. And the insult is actually administered to people who are inferior of the one who is doing the backhanding or the slapping. And unfortunately at the time, that was stuff like, oh, Romans to Jews, fathers to children, maybe, maybe uh, husbands to wives. It's not pretty, but that's, that's what was going on, right? But it was always a hierarchy thing. It was always the person doing the backhanding or the slapping has got authority over the other person. The left cheek would now offer a perfect target for a blow with the right fist. But if you do that, you elevate the person who's underneath you to your level. You say, okay, we're going to fight like fill in the blank, like men, if you want to say that. Usually women don't fist fight. So if that's the case, then you've elevated somebody to your level. Well, they didn't want to do that either. So you can see the, the, the corner Jesus has painted them into, right? You can't use your left hand. Uh, you don't want to accidentally in, uh, raise somebody to the same level as you. You want to keep them beneath you, so you've got to use your right hand. And really, this isn't for injury anyway. But here's what's fascinating. By turning the other cheek, the inferior is saying, I am a human being just like you. I refuse to be humiliated any longer. I am your equal. I am a child of God. I will no longer take this anymore. That's what Jesus is actually doing. It's a nonviolent response to violence that's subversive. And what ends up happening, I think we could, we could propose, is that eventually people are like, you know, just don't even bother slapping those people because if you do, it just gets really strange. So let's just, let's just honor them as people and move on. Now, the next two are, are easier. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let them have your cloak as well. You know, I think for most of my life, I just kind of read past that and went, okay, I don't know how they dressed, I don't really understand what was going on, and I missed the sue word. Jesus is not advising people to add to their disadvantage by renouncing justice. It's not what he's saying. He is instructing impoverished debtors who have nothing left but the clothes on their backs to use the system against itself. See, what was going on, and, and probably some of us have heard this in Bible study classes and other places, what was going on was that there was a system that had figured out a way to tax and to put people into such indebtedness that they were taking and basically stealing people's inheritance. So the land that God had given to the Jews was actually being stolen from them by Gentiles, by the Romans, by other people through different legal practices. So indebtedness was a plague in the first century. Heavy debt was the direct consequence of Roman imperial policy, and inheritance was being stolen through taxation. So that brings us back to what's in yellow. If anyone would sue you, it's kind of like the whole right cheek thing. We read right over it and just say, oh, okay. But no, they're suing in order to take you to court. 
So why does Jesus give counsel for people to give their undergarments as well? Now, this is the thing. They wore tunics, right? They wore like toga-type clothes. They wore long, flowing things. And they had two. We, we know the stories of the apostles fishing. We know other places in the text. John, young, young, sorry, young uh, Mark, when he's running after them after they leave the Garden of Gethsemane. And the text tells us in some translations they were naked. And we have people who argue, well, no, not really. That was just their underwear. And other people say, no, they were naked. doesn't matter. The point is it would have easily been an example of taking absolutely everything from somebody. You go to court... You don't have anything but the clothes on your back. And if you strip those clothes off and say, well, here, just have my clothes too then, I guess. I'm, I'm, I'm totally now completely vulnerable and you've, you've expended everything that I have. They march out of the courtroom naked. That would make quite the scene, right? And that scene, nakedness was taboo in Judaism. And shame fell less on the naked party than on the person viewing or causing the nakedness, as we understand from Genesis 9. So all of a sudden, by stripping, the debtor has brought shame on the creditor. Once again, not having to hire an attorney, go with the fees, battle this out in court. It's a nonviolent, subversive use of the system against itself. These are the things that are actually in these verses that we look at and say, well, I don't guess any of that applies to us. Um, Actually, the way they're written, some of them don't. But I'm hoping things in your mind right now are percolating about, oh, but I do see examples of how we could do this. And we could be responding in love rather than in uh, like kind to evil. The two miles might be the easiest one. So, and if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. So, a soldier comes up and says, here, carry my pack a mile, and by law, they had to do it, right? But what we have overlooked in this passage is the fact that carrying a soldier's pack a second mile is an infraction of military code. As soon as they went the second mile, several things could happen. They could be called in for some sort of punishment. They could have to do some sort of you know, community service or something, or they could just get a reprimand, or maybe their overseer wouldn't do anything and just say, don't let it happen again. But when Jesus suggests that they go two miles, it's not that he's saying the second mile is in order to build up merit in heaven or to be pious or to kill the soldier with kindness. He's helping an oppressed people find a way to protest and neutralize an uh, onerous practice despised throughout the empire. Can you imagine soldiers walking along and here's a Jew and, they say, and one of them says, hey, let's get this guy to carry our pack. And the other one goes, no. No, 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 don't. Mm-mm. If you get him to carry your pack, he's liable to carry it too, and then we're in trouble, so just don't ask them anymore. And see, I don't, I, don't think we, I don't think we realize this was the stuff that was going on in that text or in those texts. So there are ways that we can do this same honoring of ourselves, representing God, and doing it in a non-violent way whenever any type of violence or uh, inequality is shown to us. Because it's coming. We talked about it this morning around the communion table in the 8 a.m. participatory communion service saying we may not be persecuted to the level of the first century yet. Uh, we may die before that happens. I don't know. But it's getting, it's getting more and more so that the world is saying you keep your opinion to yourself. But they can't keep us from acting in ways that Jesus asks us to act. So let's go to the next section. Matthew 5, 43 through 48. 
You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Pause right there. Yes, I know several places in the Bible that it says love your neighbor as yourself. The first one that comes to mind is Leviticus 19. But does anybody know where the Bible tells us to hate our enemy? So this phrase is glued together from culture of the time, maybe even pharisaical teachings of the time, and the Hebrew Bible, which is interesting. But I say to you, Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do, you not, do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, which is a word that causes us to stumble, really complete, whole, acting like we believe, a whole mentality towards God, as your heavenly Father is perfect or complete or whole. And we're going to come back to that wholeness concept in just a bit. So the question is, have we taken this text and not really seen how much power God's actually giving us in, in the name of Jesus to go out into the world and do things that because he's with us will speak by our actions against the structures, the powers, and the evil that's all around us. Consider this remarkable fact if you're still thinking through this. In the Sermon on the Mount, there's not a single word about what to believe. That's why I attached the belief at the beginning. The Sermon on the Mount is only words about what to do and how to be fully human because you already believe, because we already have the Spirit indwelling us. We already have Christ with us to the very end. So it is literally a sermon about how to conduct ourselves. And we might say, well, I've heard that. Actions speak louder than words, right? Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't have any words, because if we have no words, um, then our actions could be wrong. But we do not argue people into discipleship. We story them into discipleship. However, if all we have words, if all we have is words and no actions, then guess what? We become like a clanging cymbal from 1 Corinthians 13. Really not very relevant, right? If all we do is just talk and we never actually do anything. Another way of saying it might be privatized Christianity does not help the world. Hiding away from tensions and challenges is not the way of Jesus. It's not the life of a disciple. So here's the question. This is kind of the heart of the sermon. Uh, are we posers or are we practitioners? If all we're doing is talking and we're not acting, we're probably posers. But if we're practitioners, we're going to get pushback. We're going to get people that make fun of us. We're going to get people telling us they don't want us around. And there's some ways Jesus has equipped us to think biblically to get around some of that stuff and still have honor for ourselves and still represent him that we know that he loves us. Here's a tougher question in the practitioner part. Are we making disciples through our daily lives? And if so, whom are we using as the discipling goal for people? Christ or ourselves? If it's Christ, then we can't say what we don't have to do. If it's ourselves, then we can. Back to the two trees and our decision point. Why not focus on the practice of discipleship then? What does it look like 
in everyday life. We must stop thinking of Christianity as a religion and start thinking of it as the way of life because that's what the Sermon on the Mount is describing to us. So I say we be practitioners, and I'm hoping that you think we should be practitioners too. So now let's go back to what Nathan read us. If we're practitioners, what do we get? Well, in Matthew 5, Jesus begins to show us how his kingdom works. Right in the middle of what we call the Beatitudes, he makes these four pronouncements. When we feel the lack of rightness in ourselves and the world, when we reach out for and seek after shalom, justice, and the putting right of all things, both internally and in the world around us, God blesses us. When we are merciful to other human beings and to ourselves, we mirror how God treats us. He does not treat us as our sins deserve, but he is rich in mercy and kindness. God blesses us. We are sowing mercy, and we will reap mercy as a result. So be merciful, even as your heavenly Father is merciful. When we are pure in heart, we see God. And that one can challenge some people, and I had a bunch of stuff in here, but I redacted some of it. It'll be in the small group study guide instead. The root word for pure in heart carries the idea of an undivided heart. Back to what I was saying a few minutes ago when I said we would we would hit on this again. A wholeness, a completeness, the perfect part of being like God. A heart that is not at war with itself, which does not split affection between God and this world. A heart that is faithfully, covenantially loyal. And the most perfect exemplar of that, even with his sin, is David. Because David was a man after God's own heart, because he never divided his heart with any other source, any other God, any other anything. He never put himself in God's place. He repented when necessary. He knew he had sinned, but his heart was wholly dedicated to Yahweh. And that's what a practitioner's heart looks like. God blesses the peacemakers. When we work for peace, others around us realize that we represent Jesus. Whew, that's heavy right there. They, re- they realize we represent Jesus. This is our longing for the lost and the broken to suddenly realize that God is real and that Jesus is the one true and living way, which is what his prayer in John 17 that we started at the beginning about unifying ourselves is saying. The world will believe when we show them Jesus. So the challenge is this. Hendersonville is not merely a means for individuals to be saved. The church is not a channel of salvation. The church is humanity saved. Think about that. All of us are in here because of what we confessed at the beginning of this, right? We all believe. We're all trying to get it right. We're all loving God, and we're all now loving each other. The church is communion with God and with one another in God. It is God's future in an imperfect present. We'll never get it right, no matter how hard we try. But in the midst of what's all around us, we're getting it hopefully more right than those who don't know God are. The church is salvation in social form, then. We are an embassy of the kingdom. And we know how embassies work, right? Embassies are in another land, in a foreign land somewhere, and they collect information about that land in order to introduce that land to who they represent in the embassy. And that's exactly what this building in this place and all the other buildings up and down this road that say church on them, at least if they're a church to Yahweh and Jesus and the Holy Spirit, it's what we're all doing. May the kingdom come and may we do God's will in Hendersonville and Sumner County as it is in heaven. 
because here's the deal. We're armed with water behind me, bread and wine from the table we've already participated in, and God's love. We don't need guns. We don't need any of the other things that are fists. We don't need to fight with people. We need to go out with what we're armed with, which is water, bread, and wine. And interestingly enough, I think this one's been the one that's been the biggest weight off of me. Um, And we talked about this at communion this morning too. John chapter 6 verse 44 has a very interesting verse. Uh, 37 is like it before it, but I have 44 on my mind. No one comes to me, says Jesus, unless the Father draws them to me. So as we go, as we go with Jesus, he identifies those we are to disciple. We are blessed, which we've read this morning in the sermon. We're valued because he gives us ways to protect ourselves and to not just be doormats. And we're loved as we go because he says he'll be with us to the very end. So I say, let's go. And as we go, hopefully this morning, if the Spirit has put something on you, because that's what we prayed for, we prayed for God to point out exactly what you need to hear, what I need to hear, what we need to take away from this morning. If that has become evident to you, shepherds will be around the room for you to come and discuss that with them or even come down front if it's congregational in nature. But any need that you have, come now while we stand and sing.